0: Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. In today's episode, Richard Reeves joined me for a discussion on the American dream, why social mobility matters, and lessons the United Kingdom offers the United States on promoting social mobility. Reeves is a fellow in economic studies and policy director for the Center on Children and Families. He previously worked as director of strategy for the Deputy Prime Minister of the U.K., and is the author of an acclaimed biography of English philosopher John Stuart Mill. Richard Reeves, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Let's start with a big question Is the American dream
1: dead? No, the American dream is not dead, but I think you would safely say that it's in need of some health care. Um, the dream is that, regardless of background, through sort of a combination of kind of hard work and ability, that any, anybody can make it anywhere. I and mean, that's part of the the self mythology of of the united states but if we look at what's actually happening the chances of someone who's born in the bottom 20% remaining in the bottom 20% is 40% and then you get exactly the same pattern at the top and by international comparisons you see less fluidity less movement if you like between where someone's born and where they end up in the us than in other countries and so to that extent the american dream is less true of america now than it is of of other nations so not dead but definitely sick
0: and what are some factors
1: uh, that you think are causing that well here of course you're into an area of huge research into multi generational uh, issues and the uh, the evidence is that a combination of factors are driving that one is rising gaps in educational inequality so you see a a gap between particularly between the middle and the top there actually Mm -hmm. we see multi-generational poverty uh, we see strong neighborhood effects, so being born into the kind of wrong zip code uh, has quite a big effect on your chances of upward mobility. Family structure has uh, a big effect, so being born to um, married parents, stable families seem to have uh, quite a strong effect. Access to higher education and college, getting, through co- getting to college and staying in college. So I've just given you a long list of factors, and the reason I've done that is because there are a long list of factors. Uh, and there's no uh, no point in trying to say that it's just, this is the one thing explaining it.
0: So if the American dream still has a pulse, despite all these factors that you've pointed to, what can be done to improve what you've called what others have called social mobility? To try to break through some of these barriers.
1: Well, I think the first thing to do is to take a, a life cycle approach. So you'll see a, a lot of focus um, at one point on the early years. Uh, Then you skip forward a year or two, and it's all about school reform. Then it's all about college. Then it's all about the labor market, getting people kind of into jobs and so on. Uh, And the answer, of course, is yes, it is about all of those things. And one of the difficulties is having a sustained look at every every single step of, of the life cycle. It's a cumulative process. So what happens is kids start behind. In um, the, the, some people say inequality starts in the womb, right? So you'll start behind um, with kind of lower birth weight. You'll then fall behind by six to twenty-four months. You'll then fall behind by preschool. And so what you'll see is the gaps kind of widening at pretty much every stage of the of the life cycle. And the first thing to do is to say we have to treat it as a whole uh, and across the whole of the of the life cycle, and then make our investments in the policies, in the interventions, in the areas which seem to have the most effect in narrowing that gap and improving life chances. So very strongly basing it on evidence. I uh, have this kind of phrase I like to use is that we're always um, promised evidence-based policy making, And all too often we end up with policy-based evidence-making, <laughs> which is that once someone's committed to a particular policy or it's in place, we scramble around for evidence to show that it's working. And what we should be doing is only spending tax dollars on policies which are shown and known to work. I'm going to take
0: that as an opportunity to shift then to this question of Head Start Mm -hmm. of of early childhood education. Uh, We've seen uh, even President Obama saying that uh, uh, study after study has shown that the biggest bang for the buck that we get when it comes to education is to invest early, and he's a strong proponent of Head Start. Uh, And you've shown in some of your research, especially in your Parenting Gap paper, that we spend, I think, 25 times more on Head Start than we do on Parenting Skills Program. Uh, and some mm-hmm. of the research shows that programs like Head Start lose their effectiveness by, right. I think, the third grade. Right. So there you have evidence that the program may not be as effective. Right. How do you react to that kind of approach? That-
1: well, on a number of levels, really. I mean, the Head Start evaluations are disappointing. There's no question about that. Um, my observations would be as follows. First of all, politicians, and I've worked for a few are typically a few years behind scholarly research. By the time uh, something becomes a kind of political cause, uh, it's probably being scrutinized much more closely within scholarly circles. So in a sense, it's taken a long time for get the political classes in this country anyway, very excited about early years investment at a federal level, just as we're starting to see evidence growing that maybe it's not the magic bullet that some people had hoped for. The second point to make is that although the Head Start evaluations do show a wearing off, in terms of academic achievements, um, it does look as if you're still seeing better attendance, uh, more like to stay in school, and kind of non-cognitive soft skills, character skills, etc. And we shouldn't forget that lots of the early evaluations that Jim Heckman did of Perry and so on actually found that that was where the biggest effect was, not in math and reading, but in ability to stick to task, apply yourself to task, even like character, um, character development. Um, the third observation to make is that lots of the evidence around early years is based on very high-quality intensive programs. Perry and Abecedarian are the two famous ones that, that Heckman introduced, and Head Start doesn't fall quite into that category. And so there is an the extent to which you get what you pay for in terms of quality uh, of, of early years. I think So I think we have reason now to look quite hard at the way we invest in early years, and in particular – who it's focused on. There's a paper just published yesterday as part of the Brookings Panel of uh, Economic Activity showing that in Oklahoma and Georgia, where you, you've seen quite high quality uh, early years, a lot of the effect is actually coming through helping parents to do a better job. There are some significant, but small, statistically significant but small effects on, uh, on reading and so on. Um, so it's a kind of balanced judgment. But what they find especially is it really works for lower income. Families, lower income parents get the best benefit from publicly subsidized early years. Actually, just making it available to everybody um, means you've got big deadweight costs. It doesn't really help the kids of those who are already affluent anyway. So, that does point towards even more targeting than the president's talked about. There, politically, it's more difficult. You know, you want a universal, it's more likely to be popular if everyone thinks they can get it. But actually, the evidence would point towards more targeting. And what I'm really afraid of is that the Head Start evaluation is a great example of, look, let's do some evidence-based policymaking, what we are just talking about now. And guess what? It turns out that actually the evidence is a bit mixed here. The danger now is that some people use that as a reason to say, oh, well, I told you it wouldn't work. Let's defund the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Let's find out what does work and invest in that. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Uh, And that's the danger with collecting evidence is that not all the evidence is going to be positive. And it can give too much ammunition to those who just say, yeah, I told you policy doesn't work.
0: And going back to your parenting gap paper that I
1: referred to a minute ago
0: and evidence, you've, you pointed out in that paper some other kinds of policy interventions that do work, but mostly on what you've called the, the parenting skills-based rather right. than the parenting
1: supplement-based. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the distinction we make, actually, which is also picked up in the paper I just referred to from uh, the Brookings panel is that Pre-K education, to some extent, is kind of doing what parents don't, won't, or can't do uh, in terms of kind of educating their kids, which is why you see much bigger effect for lower-income parents who are struggling to provide to provide quality parenting. Um, so that's not surprising. in The way you sort of doing what the parents don't right. That's one way approach. The other approach is to say, well, let's help parents do better. Let's if we think parenting is the thing that has an effect, well, let's go more directly to the problem at hand and help parents to, to do better. And what we do is we compare the kind of marginal effects you get from those sort of two kinds of programs. And we find good effects from parenting programs, hippie, family nurse partnership, and so on. Um, they're, they're, they tend to be more modest. Uh, they can be cheaper than pre-K sometimes. And they are directly about helping parents do a better job of being parents, and especially earlier. And we talk about pre-pre-K. So a lot of the focus at the moment is on four-year-olds. Uh, and, of course, that's hugely important. But a lot of the evidence is the gaps open up pretty early, and in a sense, even four is quite late to be intervening. And the parent the quality of parenting in those crucial years one and two has a very big effect. And so help and and the government is not going to be providing pre-K education to one and two year olds. Uh, that's where parents are really in the front line. Parents are the pre pre-K educators. So let's help them do a better job.
0: I was astounded uh, by the data that you Described in your parenting paper, that shows, by age of three, a poor child would have heard thirty million fewer words at home than one from a professional family. Thirty million words. Right. Um, and I think it's fascinating that social scientists are actually uh, measuring parenting, measuring inputs in the home. One of the dangers uh, that has come out in my reading of what you're working on is that some people are worried about government intrusion into the private space of family life. How do we overcome that when we know that evidence shows that such intrusions can help people be better parents and therefore help their children?
1: Right. In a sense, this goes to the heart of a moral dilemma as well as a policy dilemma, which is how far public policy can legitimately intervene in those spaces which are seen as private, sort of parenting and family functioning, right? uh, and I think we have to be upfront about that. We have to sort of argue argue for those sorts of policies without trying to brush aside the fact that there are philosophical and ethical issues at stake here as well. And my my answer to that would be twofold. Really, one is that there's a big difference here between voluntary and and mandatory. Right? We mm-hmm. uh, we we feel okay compelling people to send their kids to school from a certain age. No one's talking about compulsion for even pre-K yet. Certainly not for for parenting support. So the first thing is that. It's availability, it's there for you should you choose to make use of it rather than it being state-mandated. But secondly, I think we also need to move on a little bit past this idea that this is just an entirely kind of private matter. The way in which our kids are raised will hugely affect their life chances and the kind of society we have in the future. And so it's not a wholly private activity, or at least it's a private activity that's got a lot of public consequences. And so providing assistance to people, if the evidence is, that parenting really does make a difference to their kids' life chances. And providing additional help seems to me to be not only morally legitimate, but arguably morally necessary, if what you're interested in is that child's life chances. So who are we thinking about here? The parent's right to parent however they please, the child's opportunities in life, which to some extent are affected by the successes or failures of their parents. And if we have our minds really focus on the child and their life chances. I think that gives us quite a big space into which to say, let's help the parents who are struggling do a better job. Because the person who will suffer from that is the child. And we have a collective interest in leveling the playing field for all of our children.
0: So how do we get there? What kinds of of policies do we need? Are they federal policies? Are they state policies? How do we overcome the political? Inertia that might help us in America get to a place where social mobility focus on children
1: evidence-based Is a priority? Well, I think thinking about the the role of family in particular is a really interesting case of a space where there should really be political uh, opportunities here. Uh, both specifically and more generally around social mobility. So you start with social mobility. That should be something which you should be able to work across the aisle on. I mean, conservatives believe that people should be able to get there through kind of hard work and ability, Mm -hmm. and liberals believe in equality of opportunity. And so we can then then the argument becomes about what the kind of means are towards the end, but let's at least agree the end and agree that there's a problem here that should be being addressed. And then as far as intervening with uh, families, pre-K, parenting, that space that we just talked about, there is an interesting alliance, and you see this in some that you'll know that some of the states that are doing most on pre-K are run by Republican governors and have strong Republican involvement. And what's interesting here is that a lot of people on the Republican side will admit that family breakdown, um, problems with parenting, difficulties raising their kids are a real problem in society. It's one of the first things that they will kind of say. And what kind of liberals will say is there's a role for public policy in helping to uh, create a kind of fairer society. And then you just put those two thoughts together. Right. What you don't say is this is a big problem, and it's not. And it's wash our wash our hands of it. We're not doing anything about that, which would be an, if you like a kind of old style Republican way of thinking about this. But nor do you say, well, actually, as a kind of liberal, I, I feel very queasy about saying we shouldn't intervene in this space. Some parents are doing a better job than others, so let's not go anywhere near that. I'm much happy with schools and money and redistribution and so on. But there's there's a place to meet there, which is to say, yeah, family and parents matter, and yeah, government can help. That's a place where Republicans uh, and Democrats can really meet around. So I'm quite, in that sense, quite hopeful that that particular area and the more general issue of social mobility should be a place where people of very different political complexions can agree.
0: So you've pointed out, uh, you wrote a uh, piece about this uh, in this past year, that the UK coalition government actually has a plan, an architecture for social mobility. And in fact, they're the first nation, in the world, as I understand it, to have done that. And they've made it their number one social policy goal, which strikes me as an interesting paradox. Typically, I think Americans have thought, if they have thought at all, about British society as being very class-based, very rigid. And American society is classless and very fluid. And it feels like, uh, in reviewing a lot of the literature, this fact is being turned on its head in both countries. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, that's right. You're right. There is a sort of paradox to it. There's a kind of Downton Abbey uh, effect going on here, which is that everyone kind of, the sense of kind of upstairs, downstairs, um, fixed uh, society in Britain. But uh, as you say, the evidence is that, um, you know, at some point in a relatively recent past, if anything, the UK proved to be more uh, socially fluid, have more upward mobility than the US currently does. And I think what's going on here is that actually in the UK, there's there's quite a strong awareness of the danger of kind of class barriers becoming self-perpetuating. There's a sort of, if you like, a class consciousness, which leads even a, a conservative liberal-democrat coalition government to say we need to do something about that, make sure that class isn't perpetuated. And what people say about America is, I think somebody once said, the difference between um, the rich and the poor in America is just that the rich have more money, not that they speak differently or use their fork differently or whatever it is that signifies kind of class kind of in the... And there's sort of that sense of classlessness is, uh, is an important part of American self-definition. But it's also the case, of course, that there's quite a strong economic inequality in the U.S., which may, I stress may, translate into greater inequality of opportunity. Because if, if, if money, in a sense, makes a bigger difference to your opportunity, then if you've got more inequality in terms of money, that may have a, another effect. But I also think there's a – because Britain has suffered in the past from quite a lot of class division – it's more aware of it as a potential problem than the U.S. is. In the U.S. as a kind of sense oh, we don't have that problem. You know, mm-hmm. the American dream, right? And everybody can point to, well, look, Barack Obama, he came from kind of nowhere. Or pick, pick whoever your favorite kind of example is of Horatio Alger kind of rising up. Well, look, in America, it be true, right? And I go, yeah, but look at the evidence, right? Those are the exceptions that prove the rule. And that actually that sense of social fluidity may be harder to see in America in some ways because of this apparent classlessness, but it's just as real. And in a sense, maybe even more pernicious, precisely because people don't like to think about America that way. It isn't historically part of the way America sees itself. So that may inhibit progress on it, whereas in the UK, we all know that there's a danger of it. So we try to do something about it.
0: And I just learned about, uh, in the UK, a study of social classes. It's, it's some big field survey that they just did. I can't imagine that happening in the United States at a, at a, uh, at a high level.
1: Right, that's true. I mean, as I say, there is a kind of an an awareness of it uh, here and um, that's very different to the kind of awareness in the UK. Is Here, the belief that society is open and fluid and classless may actually be inhibiting action to make that true. Um, So I think that it's challenging to Americans to think of the UK as being more socially fluid. But also that's a good challenge. It's a good challenge because it's a challenge that you know that, that here in the U.S., my new home, we, we need to take on board, right, and say, "Blimey, if class-bound old Britain is more fluid than us, and you've got a government, a centre-right government, that is making this its mission, in terms of its education policy, investments in pre-K, access to college, etc., then m- maybe this is something we could look at here too."
0: So then, what what does a what you've called a new federal policy architecture to promote social mobility? look like in the United States context?
1: Yeah, well the first thing to say is that I think this could be done at a state level too. Um, I don't necessarily think we have to start at a, a federal level. But I think one of the first things to do is to say can we can we at least agree what we're talking about here, right? When we when we're talking about social mobility, what are we talking about? And can we, and can we start measuring it a little bit more kind of effectively? In the same way that we measure GDP. Uh, growth or productivity or something. Let's at least, let's, let's agree to kind of measure it in the right way. And then let's, every year, why don't we kind of produce a set of measures which tell us whether we're going roughly in the right direction? So you might have gaps in school readiness or high school graduation or whatever. Um, let's just give a kind of sense of where we're going. Sure, let, let's have some, let's invest, to make a wonky point here, let's invest in some longitudinal data uh, studies so we can actually find out what's going on. I mean, it's, it's a small wonk point, but one of the things the coalition government did in the UK was invest in another cohort study. Right, so, you, so it's government money to create data from which social scientists can then hold the government to account for what's happening intergenerationally. So data really does matter. And there are some moves here to try and create a data set that will allow us to do more on that. And then why not have a, some sort of institutional uh, accountability mechanism that says, OK, let's get someone to report on this every year. We've just seen the poverty figures uh, come out. Um, we have a CBO, that was a Brookings idea, I gather, Congressional yeah. Budget Office. Um, why not a Congressional Opportunity Office? Uh, why not uh, or Office of Economic Opportunity or, or whatever, which just measures what's going on, tries to hold the government to account, is nonpartisan, and brings everybody together to say, how are we doing on this? It's a relatively small kind of commitment device that would just kind of help f- focus people's minds. And as you say, if... If old Britain can do it, then uh, surely the U.S. can have something similar. So what are the consequences
0: of the problem of social mobility or lack thereof? Uh, If we don't act now in another generation, considering the evidence you've seen,
1: what are some of the danger signs that are out there? I think the danger is that an unequal society can become a stratified Society and that inequality can begin to perpetuate itself almost automatically. And you see, if you see a hardening of the ceilings that are above the children of the poor, in other words, it gets harder and harder to escape from poverty, and to some extent, a hardening of what I've elsewhere called the glass floor holding up the children of the affluent at the top of the income distribution, then I think you begin to see a different kind of society and there's a danger, I think there's a kind of tipping point danger, where it almost becomes self-perpetuating. If you get to the stage where opportunities are really uh, reduced for certain groups of population of those who are born in poverty, um, seeing significantly increased chances of staying in poverty, then that becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because you then raise a generation of kids who actually don't see that much opportunity for themselves. And one of the things we've learned is for people to seize opportunities, they have to know they're there and believe in them and trust that the trust that they're there. If you start to lose hope, then you're in real trouble. And so there's a kind of stickiness at the bottom of the U.S. income distribution. You kind of people just kind of stuck there. And I think that has fiscal consequences because you can paying for generation after generation of people. Yeah. And poverty. I think it has economic consequences because A, you're paying for them, and B, it means that your labor market's not working um, very efficiently. But above all, perhaps, I think it has moral consequences. And I think there comes a point where we have to decide what kind of society we live in. And I don't think very many people do want to live in a society where the combination of economic uh, and social factors is essentially condemning uh, a whole bunch of people to one life trajectory as opposed to another. I actually think the American dream is about inequality and opportunity together. Um, As the president himself said, actually Americans can tolerate a fairly, a a degree of inequality. Uh, You know, people who do well and work hard and get it. Americans don't have the politics of envy that you sometimes have in Europe. But the other side of the coin is a sense that that is possible for everyone. And a sense of an open, fluid society uh, where birth is not destiny. And my view is that if you start to fail on that side of the equation, if people start to feel that actually this is quite a sticky society, quite stratified, then inequality becomes much harder to stomach because then inequality is in no way an earned or a reflection of talent and hard work, but it's as much a reflection of what your parents were, where you were born, rather than who you are, and that i think goes to the very heart of the american dream and what americans think of themselves as being the american character and the american dream
0: i agree and i think that goes to the question of fairness and you've talked a lot uh in your writing and your speaking about fairness mm-hmm. uh can you talk some more about the concept of fairness writ large in this
1: this conversation right I mean I'll I'll start by talking a bit about equality and then fairness is a kind of equality if you like one of my favorite lines from Amartya Sen who's my favorite contemporary philosopher is everyone's in favor of equality they just disagree about equality of what right so is it equality of property rights is it equality of income is it equality of outcome uh, equality of opportunity um, and for me fairness a kind of the sense of fairness that people have is that uh, if you if you if you work hard you and you do the right thing, you shouldn't You shouldn't be poor. There's a kind of sense of re- reward and desert. And a sense of fairness is that people shouldn't be trapped by the circumstances of their birth, that we should be able to find our own way in the world, and that we should have the capacities and opportunities to do that. And I think that's a kind of a Bill Golston, my colleague here, um, says that e- equality of opportunity... Has a good claim to be the cardinal liberal value, and I think I agree with that. And I actually think that that runs close to people's sense of fairness as well. If you say, if you ask most people what f- fairness means, they mean yes, you should take responsibility and have to work hard, but if you do that, you shouldn't be poor. And I want a society where the hardest working, the brightest, and the best do the best, um, and where people aren't trapped by the circumstances of their birth or arguably elevated by the circumstances of their birth. That's that's for me kind of what fairness and kind of real equality. Uh, Is all about. And so, intergenerational social mobility or intergenerational relative social mobility, to be even more wonky about it, with all these charts we've got here of quintiles and elasticities and all of that, which is absolutely the empirical heart of the matter, that's just the surface for what I think is a profoundly moral question about what does a fair society look like. And right now, this doesn't look like a fair society. And everybody, regardless of where they're on a political spectrum, cannot look at the figures. For where people end up, given where they're born, and say this is fair.
0: Uh, I agree with that, and I I go back to the Downton Abbey example. Uh, I feel like more and more Americans are born into a certain place in society, and they stay there. And the data are showing that. Uh, you you just referenced Bill Galston saying that mm. uh, fairness should be a cardinal liberal value. What what do you think he means by the word liberal, and what have you meant by the word liberal? Because that's a that's a touchy word in American right. political discourse. I'm
1: learning that. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Bill means liberal, uh, as in philosophically liberal, as rather than left, and it's one of the one of the difficulties with the kind of current debate. And that's an American, because liberal has become a difficult word. I know some liberals now call themselves progressives. Um, and coming to this from kind of Europe, particularly from a UK perspective, and I'm. Uh, John Stuart Mill's biographer, I come at it from a very much a kind of classically liberal perspective. And what that means, what liberalism properly defined, right? I'm not saying we can define it this way now, kind of in the US, but certainly the way I think about it as a liberal value is the, op- that the opportunities for individuals to make of their own lives what they can and will. And so there's a hugely important element there, which is liberal in the libertarian sense, which is it's not for the government or anybody else to decide for you or for me what a good life looks like. That is, that is for us. So that's, in a sense, the kind of anti-interventionist bit. But there's another part of it, which is that everyone should have the capabilities and skills and resources to do that and then should be free to pursue that path. So if they don't end up with the resources, the education, for example, to be genuinely autonomous, that's a problem for liberals and or they face barriers to doing what they see as a kind of good life, that's a problem for liberals too. I think, to me, a big difference here is attitudes towards government, right? It's like, what's the role of government? And liberals are agnostic about government, right? They say government can get in the way of individual liberty. It can promote individual liberty, right? It can do both. In a sense, there's a problem here, which is that people see government is either the enemy or the panacea. And you see that, right? On the right, if only government got out of the way, then we'd see people springing up into stable families and reaching jobs and all our problems would go away. And then on the other side, you can see on the left and saying, what we need is a government policy for X, Y, and Z, right? It's always a kind of government policy. And so government in the US either seems to be uh, the big bad monster uh, or the big savior. And of course, the truth is that it's just one of many mechanisms that we have. So let's see government as neither good nor bad intrinsically, but as something which does have a responsibility collectively to, imp- in, to protect people's freedoms, but also to help them to, have, to lead autonomous and good lives by helping them to invest in it and sort of get off the hook of government good or bad. And that does seem to me to be a necessary step um, in terms of progressing. And that's where, that's where real liberalism in a non-political sense is to be found. And arguably, one of the creeds that helped to form this country, especially through the works of John Locke and so on, which I think has been slightly lost somewhere along the way. So if I could wave a magic wand and start using the word liberal properly in US politics, I'd be happy. But I'm, I'm realistic about whether that's going to happen. It's the thought that lies behind it that matters.
0: You know, we all need to brush up on our Locke and our mills and, and read your book to help with that. That I agree with. <laughs> so looking ahead and what's, uh, what's on the horizon for you and your research here with the Center on Children and Families. You've started the Social Mobility Memos mm-hmm. blog on our website.
1: Well, everything will fall under that, that general heading of social mobility, right? So my obsession is, is always back to what does this mean for the chances of someone born in that quintile moving out of it? Intergenerational relative social mobility is what everything comes back to. And we'll be doing more, as you say, through the memos on that. Um, more particularly, I will do more work on what an architecture would look like for the U.S., and in particular, the forms of commitment devices that governments can use to try and hold themselves to account for longer term goals like social mobility. The UK famously has a child poverty target, which is legally binding to reduce and then abolish child poverty. And now it has a whole institutional architecture holding itself to account around social mobility. And I'm very interested in the role of commitment devices for long term social policy goals. So I'll be working on that. I'm also very interested in the issue of character and uh, non-cognitive skills, soft skills, whatever euphemism you prefer, um, but clearly the evidence is mounting that the ability to apply yourself to, d- to a task, to defer gratification, to persist uh, are hugely important life skills as well as math and reading. And so the cultivation of those um, is a, a hugely important part of the story about social mobility. And then uh, lastly, I'm doing some work on uh, downward mobility or lack thereof or the way in which Those of us who are lucky enough to be at the more affluent end of the income distribution engage in what Charles Tilley called opportunity hoarding on behalf of our own uh, children and make sure that uh, that they're not downwardly mobile. Um, But it is a stubborn mathematical fact that the top quintile of the income distribution can only ever contain 20% of the population. And so if we want a more fluid society, in that sense, we all want to get better off. But more fluidity does mean downward mobility as well as up. And we have to think about opportunity hoarding as well. So I'm going to be doing some work in that space too.
0: Well, that's, that's terrific. I, I look forward to following your story and, and your colleagues on the social mobility memos and elsewhere. And Richard, I thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: To learn more, visit brookings.edu slash socialmobilitymemos.